This is Still Learning, a podcast all about learning styles and stories, where people describe pivotal learning moments in their lives, how they came to understand their own learning style or process, and what they are curious about or still learning today. My name is Katie. In this episode, I spoke with Katie Moran. In our conversation, Katie describes her journey from being a curious kid who sourced confidence and motivation from team sports to becoming a teacher with Teach for America, later a prosecutor, and now a law school professor. She highlights how informal learning and her effort to regularly reflect on her progress propelled her forward through her career journey. I was most intrigued to hear Katie's approach to studying mindsets as part of law school curriculum, since what started as a push to help more students pass the formidable bar exam led to her developing a unique course all about topics like growth mindset, self-regulation, and how to counter imposter syndrome, all as a foundation for aspiring lawyers. Katie embodies the idea of how can we get the most out of this experience. Here's my conversation with Katie Moran. I love to start with kind of thinking back to yourself as a kid and your earlier learning experiences. Like, how would you describe yourself as a young student, as a young learner? I was a really curious student. So, and I think that's what we want our students to be. At the time, I don't know that it was viewed as a great thing. Mm. So, In second grade, I 100% set off a fire alarm because I just really needed to know how hard it would be to break that little piece of glass on the front of the fire alarm that you pull. And it's so tempting, right? So tempting. (laughs) Turns out it's quite easy to do that. (laughs) So the whole school is evacuated and we're outside and I'm sitting there at my little Catholic school like God is going to smite me for this one. My curiosity (laughs) has finally gone too far, but I was definitely a very eager student, very active to, and wanting to contribute, um, which led to many recesses taken away, but in kind of a good way. I knew my teachers really cared about me and just wanted to harangue a little bit. Um, And, you know, I don't know if you had this experience, Katie, but I remember that learning was a little bit at least at a young age, almost competitive, you'd be like, oh, Matt's already on the next pack of phonics. I really want to get to that level, which I know can be a detriment, but to me was kind of energizing and exciting, Mm -hmm. even though I was not what, you know, at the pack number five with, you know, 10 syllable words and all that. Mm. So that kind of competition works for you. Yeah. And I think I, you know, I was like this total tomboy, love playing sports. So I think that totally worked for me yeah. and it made learning really kind of into something that was an extension of what you would do in PE class or what you do with your basketball team. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think it, it's probably true that if you think about it as, you know, some people like to play sports and are motivated by that and some don't like that would make sense then it's, it's a, a different way of relating And I think maybe the trouble or the complication can be when we just assume like this is going to be motivating for everyone. Yes. Or when we think, um, you know, when you get that grade, that would be, you know, I didn't win the competition. If that fixed mindset is with you and you lose, what does that mean for you? So that could be a really bad thing without the right protections in place. Right. 
That makes total sense. Yeah. And then how, um, how did that translate for you going forward as like more formally as a student and what you chose to study or, you know, where you found yourself in education and then into career land? You know, one thing I remember about both of my parents growing up that I loved, although at the time, I don't know if I thought of it as the best thing is they took no personal pride in how I did at anything. So, you know, after a basketball game, I'd be like, oh, did you see that left-hand layup? And my mom would be like, oh yeah. And the three-point shot. I'm like, that wasn't even me. Like, were you paying attention? Ah. You know, we all kind of look the same out there. And yeah. the same was true of school. If I do well, they'd say, did you try your hardest? I say, yeah, great. If I do poorly, they'd say, did you try your hardest? And I'd say, yeah. And they'd say, great. And I sort of love that detached and it's not really detached. It's really just effort focused. And um, yeah, effort emphasis style rather than results oriented. And I think that informed a lot of how I saw myself as a learner. Am I trying hard versus am I getting an A? Mm, yeah, yeah, that's really cool. It's like, yeah, process over outcome. Yes, which is so funny because like now, being in higher education, every time I think about the word process, it really seems like a swear word to me. I'm like, oh, process, God. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? Uh, because I guess I think of administration and rules and regulations and not learning process and um, yeah, consolidation right. process. Yeah, I was thinking about, speaking of, yeah, reflecting back on Catholic school days, upbringing. I also went to a Catholic school for elementary school and the um, bulletin boards, you know, in the hallway, like what gets presented, what gets displayed, like the equivalent of the, the three-pointer, the layup, whatever, you know, it's like the finished book report with the cursive that's been carefully transcribed yes. in pen and the, you know, drawings and marker versus um, an, another idea of, I went to a school recently and the bulletin boards were all just like, you know, writing that was being edited and there were pieces of paper hanging off of it and smudges from the pencil and it was torn. And it was like, no, we're in the middle of the writing process and it's messy. <laughs> I love that. It's, you know, content over this performance. Uh, did you ever have to do one of those like Shakespeare projects where you'd turn in a folio and it was meant to maybe translate, you know, what was the original text and what does it mean now? And people would take it to the next level. Mm. They'd have the burnt edges, the tea oh, stain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my mom was never about helping me with that kind of thing. She's like, <laughs> I will help you translate Romeo's speech, but no, the burning is not for me. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's another level. <laughs> Do you guys have display cases at your school? Because you teach third graders, right? No, display cases, right? Well, this year, everything's been kind of flipped on its head. And we have, we've been doing a lot more experimenting with online sharing, which has been really cool. And um, I've been using a lot of like, there's one called Padlet, which is just like a digital bulletin board. Oh. And, um, and then the kids can like they made these models of brains recently. And so they all took pictures of their brain board and put it on the Padlet and then they could look at each other's and leave comments. Oh, and we talked cool. about that process, but um, yeah, no, I, I would like to do more of that really showcasing, like being in the middle of it. 
Yeah. What would your important. showcase be? Would you, would yours look pretty or would they be smudgy? It'd have to be smudgy. <laughs> <laughs> if unless I'm really not talking the, walking the talk. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I want to hear then about your first experiences as a teacher, since we've talked a little bit about that and like how, why TFA, what drew you to it and what was it like for you? Yeah, I was thinking about this a little bit in preparation for this conversation because if it'd be easy to skip a few steps. So yeah, cut me off if I'm being too long-winded about it. But so I went to, you know, K to eight Catholic school in Marin County. I went to St. Ignatius for high school. I went to UCSB for college and I played lacrosse on the club team there. And I think a lot of my best learning experiences as being really team-based experiences. Like we are in this together. Mm -hmm. And my favorite teachers, you know, weren't ones that were, I have knowledge, let me give it to you from on high. It's, you know, how can we together figure this out? And I felt mm -hmm. really motivated by that kind of learning. And that probably informed why some of my favorite experiences at UCSB were on my lacrosse team. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, we together want to make the national tournament, you know, we together want to achieve whatever the goal is. Mm -hmm. And so I'm nearing the end of my time at UCSB and I'm thinking about how do I, <laughs> sorry, okay. uh, how do I sort of take my own learning to the next level? I mean, I'm an English major, so there's just no job I'm actually qualified for anyways. <laughs> And it seemed like the next step in terms of stretching myself and my own learning would be something that would just be really hard. And that was not individual based. That was more of this team aspect that I'd experienced yeah. being on the lacrosse team with all these wonderful women. And so uh, TFA was recruiting really hard on my campus and I had no idea what it was or what it was about. And luckily, man, they are good salespeople. I mean, by the end of you know, my three levels of application, I was like, if I don't get into this, I'm going to be so mad. Whereas, you know, at the first level, you're like, what is this? By the end, right. I was so excited and motivated by the mission. Mm. And so I got really lucky. I not only got in, I got placed in the Bay Area back to where I was from. From there, I even got placed in San Francisco, which was really lucky. Mm. And the only thing I was totally unprepared for was as I'm thinking about what this placement will look like over at Summer Institute and preparing to be a secondary English teacher, you know, six through 12, someone from the Bay Area TFA calls me up and they say, hey, we don't have any secondary English spots. Those are few and far between. And so, you know, how's your math? And I'm like, ooh, you know, not, not, not six to 12 strong. Yeah. <laughs> Just I just spent four years avoiding math. <laughs> and, uh, and so it ended up being, they suggested that I apply to special ed positions. And I really knew nothing about that. But of course, by the end of having a conversation with a few different special ed teachers where they're telling me smaller classrooms, paraprofessionals, you know, kids who it sounds like kind of like we're like you when they were growing up, Katie, overactive, curious, teachers might've gotten a little bit annoyed with them at times. Mm. And so I got a secondary special ed position in a mild to moderate classroom at Balboa High School. And I had no idea what I was in for, you mm. know? I mean, you never do when you're teaching. And yeah. I think I 
doubly didn't because I'd learned about special ed like three days before starting, you know, when I sat down at my interview with their, with the principal, he goes, so you've always wanted to teach special ed. (laughs) Like as of Tuesday. Yeah. I think, I think my resume still said seeking secondary English position. (laughs) And what was funny was I ended up teaching English, math and science there. Um, and you know, was like a day ahead of them at times, you know, once Mm -hmm. in a while. And in environmental science class, they'd ask me, well, like, why did the redwoods grow like this? And I'd be like, we're going to cover that next class. And then, you know, Katie furiously Googles after class to figure out why do the redwoods grow like that? And so, um, as you know, TFA is a two-year commitment. And when I started, I got a class of freshmen and I've somehow always been lucky at these sort of make your own fate jobs. And so I got to move up with them as sophomores. And I felt really motivated by the growth we saw. And I got to move up with them as juniors. So I ended up staying, getting to read all their names at graduation. Oh, wow. And um, a lot of them ended up being in um, inclusive, what's the right term now? Inclusion classrooms, right? And so got to co-teach in some general ed classes and make sure that they could be successful in there. So it was such a cool thing. And, And by the end, I mean, I had learned probably far more than my students had learned about myself, about teaching, about growing, about learning. And I'd always known I wanted to go to law school. And by then I was like, law school is going to be so easy compared to running a classroom full of students of every different need. And that need could be, you know, psychological, educational, like a very basic need about what's not being provided to them hungry as heck mm-hmm. you know by the time I went to law school it was like oh all I have to do is learn for myself okay mm-hmm. I can do that that's a, that's kind of a gift that's a privilege to be able to just focus on you and your own learning yeah are there any specific memories that really stand out to you from that time you know in answer to the question of like how do you make it real mm-hmm. one of the coolest things that happened is another one of the TFA teachers started a yearly trip to Yosemite at the end of the year. Nice. And it wrapped up our unit on um, water systems and giant sequoias and sort of put everything together. Cool. And so we got to take a group of 20 students, like 20 special ed students, like four or five teachers who were like 21 to 24 years old (laughs) driving their own cars, you know, up there. I'm an adult. (laughs) Yeah. Adult enough. And, uh, and it was the coolest bonding experience, both with the other teachers and with the students, you know, we had kids who'd never left San Francisco. And I remember the first year we went, there was still snow on the ground in May and Mm. the, the kids went crazy (laughs) what it can we play with it they never asked permission to do anything in the classroom before but like can we touch it yeah yeah for sure and it was so cool to watch them learn about themselves and the environment in a real place rather than you know in this removed setting where we'd always been trying to bring the reality and bring the purpose but it all came together there Yeah. That's, that's amazing. It makes me think sometimes hearing that. Yeah. And it's like, we should just be teaching outside all the time. (laughs) You know, I'm doing a a learning class now. And one of the ideas is, you know, how do we move from sort of 
one state of mind where we're always practicing like, oh, solve an individual problem to another state of mind where how am I letting ideas sort of get into my mind and then I can sort of consolidate and come up with mm. you know, brilliant, more focused solutions later. And a huge suggestion in there, a huge part of it is just exercise, like being outside, going for a walk, going for a run. That is where your mind, when you're not trying so hard, can start to really make these connections and put these things together. Yeah, that makes total sense. the learning course you're doing right now and mindset. And I really want to ask you to say more about that. And I I just, from our, yeah, from our earlier conversation, I've been thinking a lot about how cool it is to have the opportunity, A, to design a course around mindset and kind of internalize and integrate everything you've learned about it and to put it at the forefront of school for students I'm trying to do that with third graders, you know, but I think it's so cool that you're doing it with law students. So how did that come to be? And like, what's your motivation for this course? Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. So jumping forward. So I, I do TFA, I do law school. I then, I was a prosecutor for four years in Contra Costa County. Not to jump over that really important (laughs) stretch of time. Thank you for connecting the dots. Which is really just teaching juries yeah, and hopefully yeah. teaching them guilt is correct most of the time in that case. Mm-hmm. And then um, the pandemic hits, courts are completely shut down. And you know, I, I had this goal of let me do 30 jury trials and then kind of see where I am and reassess and see what the next best, best step is for me. And so right when the court shut down, I was at 29 jury trials. Wow. And I'm talking to some people at USF about this position that's opened up for, it's an assistant professor position, but really what they're looking for is a co-director of our academic and bar exam success program. Okay. So one of the big goals of law school, of course, is you bring people in, you train them to be lawyers, and then they have to pass the bar and then they become lawyers. And you hope that they are the intelligent, curious, ethical lawyers that you've trained them to be. But the bar exam can be this huge roadblock. You know, it's it's not unlike at the end of the year at a lot of public schools where you do the end of the year testing. And that's the way that the school, in a lot of ways, is assessed on how well they've been teaching everyone. And USF's bar pass rate had just plummeted. I mean, I think mm. the year before I joined, it was 40% of first-time takers were passing the bar. Wow. And for context, Katie, it's offered two times a year. So if you don't pass, that's six months later, you have to dedicate another 10 weeks to studying. It costs tons of money. I mean, you can't work. You really have to study full time. It costs like a thousand bucks to even take the test. And it's an incredibly stressful experience for you, your family, everyone else. And so USF had created this position for someone to work with our bar exam team and figure out how do we make sure we're putting everyone in the position to pass at each level of law school. So what do you need Mm. to be able to do at the first year level, at the second year level, at the third year level? And then what sort of support do we need to provide to graduates who are studying for the bar? And so um, when I was talking to USF, (laughs) they said, are you ready to leave prosecuting? And I said, no, I, I still have one more trial to do. <laughs> I'm like, isn't that like a little bit unnecessarily formalistic? <laughs> 
And, uh, and so anyways, it was kind of the perfect timing, even though I didn't get to 30. Um, it was just this, they had this position open. I felt like it was perfectly designed for what my interests are, which is, you know, bringing everyone up and making sure we have really awesome people coming into the profession of lawyering. That mm-hmm. it's not just more of the same. And that's what I loved when I was a student at USF. You know, mm. I, I told you it's fun to learn for yourself, but one of the things I was doing there was tutoring uh, classes that I'd done well in. I eventually became the tutor trainer there. So I sort of, I never really lost this education side. And this was yeah. a really cool mixture of that all. And so I get the job there and my hypothesis is, look, the bar exam is a test of minimum competency. It's really hard. You have to keep a lot in your head, Mm. but everyone we admit at our school should be able to pass the test Mm -hmm. in terms of skill, right? That, or at least in terms of content, it's all learnable stuff. I mean, Katie, I don't know how many lawyers you've met. We're not all very smart. You know, <laughs> I count myself as, you know, in the middle there. And so you don't need to be brilliant to pass. But it seems like there is some deficit because why is it that only 40% of our students are passing? So to me, it, it became a question of what are the skills and mindsets that we need learners to have to be able to pass this exam? And I saw it much more as a skill and mindset deficit rather than a content issue. Because I mean, there are amazing professors there. They know the content so well. They deliver it in really um, in in really profound ways. And and when you study for the bar, you have to relearn it anyway. So it seems yeah. to me, okay, what is it that that we're lacking there? And to me, even once you've broken that down, and tell me if you disagree, Katie, <laughs> none of that matters unless you're instilling the right mindsets. Like it doesn't matter what skills you've set up, how well you teach the content. If you don't have students, even as adults who are walking into your classroom thinking, I want to learn this and I'm capable of learning this. Mm -hmm. In TFA, they called it, I want and I can. Mm -hmm. They're not gonna be able to learn any of the stuff really meaningfully. And so that's where I start in a lot of classes is how can I invoke self-interest and self-efficacy? Because that's what they have to do as learners. And of course, at the graduate level with really dense stuff, right. they have to open up their book and prepare to read a case that was written like 60 years ago in really convoluted language. And they have to find a way to care about it and to connect it to why, either why they're reading it or if they can't really do it there, why they're in law school to begin with you know, really backing up and getting that big picture. So to me, that was something I did with my special ed students. It's something I do with the law students I teach at the second year. It's something I'm thinking about as I'm designing a class for first year students that's purely on skills and mindsets mm-hmm. for first year students next fall. I think that's where, that's at least where I begin. What do you think? That's so cool. Yeah, I well, I wanted to also ask, as a follow-up to that, I mean, how much do you think back to yourself as a student in law school and what it would have been like for you to have this class? Like, what's your personal connection to some of these topics like growth mindset and imposter syndrome and becoming, learning how to regulate yourself as a learner? Like all of that feels so foundational. It feels like, so important. 
<laughs> but sometimes I do wonder if I would hate or love myself as a teacher, but that's like <laughs> a totally different psychological thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, back when I was doing TFA Institute, I remember reading my first article by Carol Dweck and it was one of these basic, I think it was even an article meant for students about growth mindset versus fixed learning. Mm -hmm. And I remember I had a picture of the brain. It's like, your brain is like a muscle. And I, I'm sure you've shown things like that to your students. Yeah. And I remember reading it and being like, this is so profound and so obvious, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but I'd never read it like that. You know, I'd never experienced anything of that sort. And so TFA gave me my first exposure to that brain psychology and that neuroscience of like, okay, what, you know, what is the difference between having a growth mindset and being effort-based, which as I told you, my parents were all about mm -hmm. and having a fixed mindset and being really performance-based. And of course, a bad performance then determines how smart or not smart you are. Right. And so, yeah, when I taught, I loved things like that. Like every way I could convey that to my students um, in high school was an opportunity to get them more and more bought in mm -hmm. to their own ability to learn. And so, yeah, as I was preparing to teach sort of my first full-time law school classes, I thought, okay, how do I do this, but take it to what that looks like at a graduate level? I mean, I can't just show them the third grade, your brain is a muscle article. Although I think those are really well written and good. Yeah. <laughs> People don't love being babied. And so, uh, you know, I started collecting all the resources I had. You know, I, I reread uh, Angela Duckworth's Grit, which mm -hmm. was amazing. Um, read the actual mindset book by Carol Dweck. Mm -hmm. You know, read Deep Work by Cal Newport. Mm -hmm. You know, started just collecting all these things. There's one book on self-regulated learning in a law school setting mm. called Expert Learning for Law Students. But it's the same thing that you study when you're working with your students in metacognition. You know, mm -hmm. how do I go about the process of planning a learning task, performing it, and then evaluating how I did and self-assessing and then move through that cycle again and keep adjusting each time. And so I nerd out on that stuff. I just, I love it. To me, I find that really motivating, you know, that I, no matter what the setting I can learn, if I just set my mind the right way versus, you know, continue to bang my head against a wall or versus see failure and just tell myself, okay, well, this subject isn't for me or whatever that may be. Yeah. It seems like especially important for law too. And this is me, someone like, you know, saying like, I have very little experience with the legal world with law, but I would think like when you were talking earlier about the bar exam and kind of, you know, how like on a content level, there's no reason these students shouldn't pass, but it seems like, like, so then what is getting in the way, right? It's like the skills and the mindset piece around, it seems like there's this kind of mythology around the bar exam. Like it's so hard and it's this intense experience and yeah, like everyone, your connections and families all feel it when someone's taking the bar. And I felt that as like the, you know, adjacent friend or mm -hmm. partner or whatever. And it's, it's very, it's just, there's so much psychology around it. So to get in there with some skills and break some of that down, seems like it'd be especially empowering. 
that was part of my hypothesis coming in is we have people who are able, but they tell themselves these stories about why they're not able. And then we each react differently to those stories. So maybe one reaction is, okay, so if I'm not going to pass, if I'm guaranteed to take this twice, maybe I shouldn't study that hard. Because that way, when I don't pass, it won't reflect as much about my, you know, quote unquote, innate abilities or talent on this. Mm -hmm. And it, I don't know. I saw that a lot in my high school classroom. I don't know if you see it ever with your students where that kind of it, justifying or that. Thing yeah. Like. My, I, I shouldn't, I, if I don't put forth much effort, it will allow me to say, if I don't do well, it's because I didn't put in the effort. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's probably third graders in my experience are less aware of it when they're doing that. But yeah, I think it still happens. It's definitely, it's like, and the way parents relate to them, it's like, you know, with younger kids too, there's like this weird trifecta thing of like, you know, you're, you're teaching the kids, but you're also in relationship with their parents. And I was just reading something the other day about like homework and putting in attention because that's where parents tend to be more involved. Right. And the the power and the value of a parent just being able to sit with their kid and say like I don't know how to solve mm. this or you know like if you know there's like math that math is taught in a really different way now than how many of us learned or many of our parents learned math and on the whole and that can be really intimidating I think for a lot of parents um Mm. Like they, they can't help their kid because they don't understand and they don't know when actually maybe the most powerful thing they could do is just to sit with them in their struggle yeah. <laughs> and remind them that they can do it. And even if they're not sure right now, they can keep learning um, and working on it and it, it, that it's a process just like anything else. So that P word, yeah. but it's, <laughs> it's so true. And, and I could think of a few moments where with my dad, I was studying algebra and I think in eighth grade, we had this opportunity to take algebra at the high school nearby at Marin Catholic. Mm -hmm. And I remember feeling like I was so over my head and I brought it home. And I remember we were both sitting at the table trying to figure it out and he did not know. And I was so frustrated when I saw he didn't know. I'm like, well, how am I supposed to do this? Yeah. My own dad can't figure this out. He's an adult, but just sitting together and working through it and I remember at one point we turned to the back to get the answer and then we just worked backwards from there. Okay, well, how did they get to the answer? And watching him be comfortable going through that process of not knowing was at least in retrospect, liberating. I think at the time I was like frustrated, <laughs> just wanted to get the homework done. Yeah. But what a cool thing to have gone through with him. Totally. And man, and you know, well, you know this about me, I'm 38 weeks pregnant right now. And I'm thinking a lot about parenting going forward. And that is such a good reminder to be thinking about your job as a parent isn't always to have the answers. It's just to yeah. sit with someone in discomfort and to tell them they can figure it out and we're here for them. I think one of the best pieces of, pieces of advice I ever got as a teacher was like, your job is not to be the answer key, mm -hmm. you know, like, and it thinks more, mm. it makes me think more about like, um, what we were saying before about 
your role as a teacher, whatever you're teaching, not as just a deliverer of the knowledge of the content, like into the kids' minds or the students' minds that are just these open receptacles, right? And more about like teaching them the skills to navigate their own learning process and to research and to find information when they need it. But it's more of a coach than a just like teacher in the traditional sense. So yeah, I, I think parenting like at all. <laughs> I don't And, you know, when I think of my most meaningful learning experiences, most of them were on the informal side. And that's not to degrade, you know, how great law school as an experience can be or how great it can be to, you know, study English in undergrad, you know, for no apparent reason. But when I think about when I've experienced the most growth, it's, okay, I'm at, you know, Teacher America Summer Institute. I've read all the books they told me to read, but I'm teaching this summer school class and doing a garbage job. And I've got to, by the next day, come up with a lesson that's better than the day before. And that's responsive to whatever the problems were in the class yesterday. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if we're returning to that notion of self-regulated learning, right? I've planned my task, I've performed, now I'm reflecting. Okay, that went horrible. And we're all tempted in that phase of that went horrible to say like, that went horrible. I hate it. I'm bad at this. I don't want to do it anymore. Can I please go home? (laughs) And then once we move on from that, it's like, okay, well, what part of it was actually horrible Mm. and why was it? I didn't have a clear enough objective. Was it, I sat two people together who have no business sitting together. Was it, I could make this more engaging. I could make it more visual, auditory, kinesthetic, whatever. And I think sitting through that process of having to engage in that cycle every day is kind of what made me who I am as a learner and as a teacher. And I I don't think of myself really as that much of a teacher. I think of myself as a coach, right? How do I improve and bring everyone with me improving? So I don't know for you, if you've had the same, but for me, it's those, that informal learning on the side that has made me who I am. Yeah. And by informal learning, you mean like reflecting on the experiences that your formal learning prepared you for supposedly. (laughs) Yeah. Supposedly it's a good word, but yeah. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. I mean, it's same with being a trial lawyer, right? You get a verdict that you don't like. So in my case, it'd be a not guilty verdict. And like, do you go home and blame the judge? Do you blame the jurors or do you say, okay, well, what was, was it that I can walk away with here that I can improve on for next time? Mm. I'm going to pick better jurors who aren't from Kensington. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Never put a juror from Kensington on. Um, Am I going to, you know, change how I present my case or how I talk about it or the expectations that I set with jurors for it, Mm. but like finding these small discrete takeaways so that I can, improve my cycle of learning on this all. Yeah. How did, were you doing that as a lawyer too? Like oh, how yeah. did you think about that after? Is there, or is there like a, a memory in particular of a time when you brought like some teacher mind into being a lawyer? I, I think I did that with every case, but yeah, I, I can really remember when this one supervisor, 
he sat in on my first trial that I actually had as a law student. I was a second year law student and I had like a trial of the century. It was vandalism. <clears throat> and, <laughs> and the jury came back guilty, which is good. She, uh-huh. Okay, fine. She, the person did it. And I remember talking to my supervisor and he's like, so what are your takeaways from this? And I'm like, oh, it was great. I'm so happy. You know, I'm just so glad I didn't embarrass myself. And he's like, you know, a lot of people make the mistake of they get the result they want. And so they think they did everything well, mm. kind of the, when you get the, the false negative on a test, right? right? Right. And so he's like, I really want you to sit down and think about individually what went well and what are the areas for improvement. Mm-hmm. And then of course we got to go with the flip side, Katie. So if I get a hang or if I get a not guilty verdict, it's okay. Well, what were the parts of this that were good that I would replicate? And what are the parts that I would actually go about and change and make sure that they're better for next time? Yeah. It's like being able to notice just in the moment what was going well, like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and it's, I mean, it's so hard when you're driven toward, you know, one result that really defines mm-hmm. for everyone you work with, how you did, you know, what yeah. people in the community say about it. So a lot of what I would do is I would early on just meet with judges afterwards say, mm-hmm. Hey, what'd you notice? You oh, watch cool. people come in, in and out of your courtroom every day. What did you think of how that went? What did I do that annoyed you? what did I do that you liked? And, you know, like all advice, you're going to get some really great points and some things that, that you smile and nod and think I'm never going to change that. (laughs) Right. Right. That's a great example. Thank you for sharing that. Only other thing that really stood out to me that I was thinking is what you were sharing about, um, the difference of like the danger of waiting to become someone. Mm. And I was thinking about this as like really potent as, you know, for young students and also for lawyers when you're kind of, you know, in the development process of imagining yourself as this future lawyer. And can you explain what you were saying before about, um, you know, like who you are today is the person you are and yeah. how do you, what do you do with that? Yeah. I have to remind myself of this all the time of who I am in my worst moment is who I am and who I am in my best moment is who I am. And I think the thing that you and I were talking about earlier is it's so easy to notice this in other people, by the way, and not in ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so I would notice when I was teaching high school, my students would have this almost cognitive dissonance. When I learn this thing, when I'm a sophomore, you know, when I choose to try then, and we tell ourselves these stories, it was this form of like, I don't know if it was educational procrastination, psychological procrastination, personal improvement procrastination. And so when I think about how do I live in integrity and in line, align my values with my day to day, rather than just, oh, these are my values. They're so important to me. I always really try to connect myself with the moment and say, okay, who I am right now is who I am. So it's not just this process of becoming, I'll be this better person later. I'll live into my values later. It's okay. I'm an educator. So in this moment, when I'm having this really frustrating interaction with a student who's not as prepared as I think they should be, or isn't responding in a way I think they should be, it can't be, 
I'll respond better next time. I have to respond really well in this moment right now because I am an educator. And if I care about this, then I care about it right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think about that in the tougher moments that I've had just navigating with students, even just in like what feels like really simple stuff where I think I had this bias going in of like, okay, I got to teach math. I have been teaching this, like, this is all the priority. And then, you know, like there's two kids who are in a fight or upset at each other and no one's going anywhere in, in math until we kind of resolve this or, or, figure out what's going on or address the like emotional discomfort, at least in a way that allows us to, yeah, like be present or put it aside for the moment. And, and I used to really struggle a lot with those conversations and how to be a facilitator and not just say like, you're wrong, say sorry, or like any of these like black and white things, because that doesn't help them. Um, And it's been really gratifying to feel like my muscles in that department are growing around just even reflecting on myself like okay how's this going for me like I'm feeling really frustrated because I'm hearing you say the same thing again and again or I'm noticing that xyz is happening versus then seeing the students be able to own their own role in something a little bit more like when you model that and when you model being in your values and being really present with whatever's happening, even if it's like kind of shitty or like not going that well <laughs> in the moment, it, it just, it like lets everyone like <sighs> breathe a sigh of relief. I, I, there, are authentic. Two, there are two things that you said there that really get me thinking. So one is, you know, when we're teaching these stories, we tell ourselves in our heads. So if someone isn't showing they know or going along with the lesson because they're in a fight, we're thinking, what does this say about me as a teacher? It's almost right. bringing in this ego that that need not be there at all. Totally. And the second thing you said about modeling that's so real is, you know, I think of the moments that I've best modeled this aren't when I responded well in the moment. I rarely did, Katie. It was like yeah. this evidence class was 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. It was remote. Like No one was their <laughs> best selves. But it's when I would come back to class the next day and say, Hey, I said this thing and that was wrong. And here's why it was wrong. Yeah. That's or, so important. Oh my God. I told a student in class this year, I asked them, you know, what does the rule say about this? And they said, I think I said, I don't care what you think, which was so rude. It's a <laughs> school law thing to say. I remember walking out of class, which is in my own room and turning to my husband and saying, it's week four. And I already told the student, I didn't care what they thought. Am I the worst? professor ever <laughs> yeah fire me now and I started the next class talking about that with them like, I can't I can't believe I said that let me explain where I was but that's not what I want to say yeah. and then throughout the rest of the semester when someone would start a sentence with I think they would go oh I know you don't care what I think <laughs> kind of making fun of me <laughs> but but we got to catch ourselves and model catching ourselves because yeah. we have to show we're learning too otherwise how can we expect others to do that for sure. <laughs> awesome. Well, I think it's been awesome to speak with you. <laughs> I care deeply what you think. 